you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi, City on a Hill. I'm Sarah, and I joined the church earlier this year, particularly for a more supportive community. Um, even though we've spent most of it online, I have been super grateful to my GC, who's been so supportive through this lockdown. So shout out to my Glen Waverley GC. Um, throughout the week, I am a physio and I work in an aged care and also with neurological clients, so those with strokes, brain injury and Parkinson's. Um, it can be quite challenging, but it's also my passion. Um, today we are reading from Luke 18, verse 18 to 30, so if you could please get your Bible, open it up and read with me. So Luke 18, verse 18, the rich ruler. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then, who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey church, good to see you this Sunday morning. My name is Nick. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of City on a Hill in Melbourne's East. And as Lisa's already said, we are a church all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And that's what today is about. That's what our teaching series at the moment is about. So we're going to dive into the second last episode of our encounter series. Uh, turn with me if you haven't already to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to pray for us. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we know that we can read it, yet apart from your spirit, it won't land on us. So come now, we pray, and soften our hearts and open our ears and our eyes that you might help us see, help us hear, help us fear, feel and believe what it is that you might have to say for us. Jesus, push through into our hearts, amidst all the noise, amidst all the distractions right now, even based on our environment where we are. Lord, have our hearts tuned in on you right now. And so come and make Jesus big for us today, we pray. We want to encounter him. And we pray this uh, in the mighty, the powerful, the beautiful and precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. Well, I am uh, conscious that there are many people who have joined us uh, online, tuning in due to this lockdown environment, and we haven't had the chance to meet before. It would be good for you to know that I'm married to a beautiful woman named Jules, and we have two kids, uh, a five-year-old named Axel and a almost three-year-old named Aria. Uh, and we've been married for almost 11 years now. And not to kind of air our dirty laundry, but I thought I might share one of the most challenging points of tension in our marriage. And that is that I just have this uncanny ability to fall asleep, to particularly fall asleep when Jules and I decide to spend time together watching a movie. You can imagine just how romantic it is when you've kind of bought tickets to gold class, uh, when, you, when, when able to, uh, and, and you kind of gene yourselves up uh, all week because the latest sci-fi epic is coming out and you're there to watch the release and then just how romantic it is that as you get to that climactic moment and the base of this, maybe it's interstellar, the base of the soundtrack is, is shaking the gold class seats when you look over at your husband. And there he is settling in into his second round of REM sleep. It's just the romance is palpable. And what has happened during lockdown, uh, even we we can't go to the cinemas, but, uh, you know, every date night is a Netflix night. Uh, Catching up on on what is the the latest TV show or the latest new release movie. And that hasn't kind of dulled my ability, but just exacerbated my ability all the more. You can see a picture uh, on the screen where uh, Jules, because she has a habit of taking happy snaps when uh, she turns and finds me asleep. Uh, There I am, donning the City Youth hoodie, but fast asleep. I wasn't watching the movie with her. I was watching my own movie in my dreams. Uh, And this skill got me in particular trouble when our kids were even younger than they are now, because naturally young kids, they need tending to during the night. But I am a deep sleeper. And so... It would often be the case that I will have had uh, an awesome, continuous, deep sleep throughout the night. And I would wake up very early in the morning and go, Jules, how awesome was last night? The kids finally slept all night. I had a great sleep. I feel more energetic than I have in months. And she would turn to me and say, how could you? How dare you? You do not even know how many times I have been up during the night caring for our children and you're asleep to it all. And so you can imagine what that looked like. There I am, unconscious in a a warm bundle of comfort, totally oblivious to the work that my wife is putting in to keep our children alive. So if we liked dogs and we had a doghouse, I would be in it. And all the young mums said, Amen. Now, that story that we can laugh at Uh, In this episode of our Encounter series, well, actually, it's far more common than just me. And while we can laugh at my take on it or my experience of it, actually, this encounter that we're going to look at today reveals that far more people in the world experience this, but to a far more serious degree. Because today in the Bible passage we're going to look at, we come to this episode in the life of Jesus, where he has an encounter with a young man. And that young man is going to be told, in effect, that he is asleep to what really is going on around him and to what really the difference that Jesus makes in the world and in my life and your life and his life. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18. 
And I've been praying that this encounter might be a wake-up call for all of us today, that we might wake up to what is going on in the world. As we turn here, we meet a young ruler. And this young ruler asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this man knows that because of Jesus' popularity, he's got kind of one chance to have uh, a conversation, one chance to put a question to this teacher now. And so he gets straight to the deep stuff. He doesn't kind of, kind of waste his time around in the, in the small talk, asking about weather or sports, doesn't talk about politics. Now he goes for broke. He asks this massive question. And we're told later that he is a, a young man who's actually extremely rich. He's got investment properties, he's managing staff, he's got toys to play with on the weekend, but he's running up to Jesus seemingly in desperation, kneeling before him asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so evidently everything that he had, money, influence, some sense of notoriety, I'm sure, his ambition, the possessions that he had, evidently that wasn't providing enough. That still there was within him a, a yearning in his heart for something more, something bigger than himself, something more permanent that will last forever like eternal life. And so what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And before looking at Jesus' response to the man, I want us to, want us to consider that this young man that we are meeting is actually a representative of far more people that we might encounter in our own life. He actually might be representative of people like you and me, people from the eastern and southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. People who have everything that they need materially, yet still something gnaws at them internally, existentially, spiritually even. And so, yes, if we had our moment with Jesus, our one shot to ask him a question, we might word the question quite differently than this young man did in the first century. It might sound far more 21st century. It might sound far less religious. But I'm certain that this desire that is expressed in the question of this young man is also a desire that is expressed in each one of our hearts, in your heart, in my heart, in the hearts of those who are in the houses and the apartments surrounding us. We might say, hey, sir, what can I do to be happy forever? Hey, teacher, how can I be financially independent and retire early so I can really have the life that I want to have? Hey, Jesus, what, what can I do to know that I am heading in the right direction? How can I live my best life? How can I finally feel like I've made it? Like I have achieved true rest and satisfaction. And so this young man, just like you and I, he's got a heart that is longing, that is searching, and that is hoping to secure something outside of himself. Now, it doesn't take a genius to see that our world is made up of people who are aiming at happiness, aiming at satisfaction, the true life, something bigger than themselves, because what we currently experience, what we currently have just doesn't fulfill that longing. It doesn't provide it. COVID has provided us all the opportunity to get more familiar with online shopping. Uh, and so I've started to take more risks in my online shopping because when online shopping first became a thing, the first things that I would buy were just books. And books are like the safest option to buy online because you know exactly what you're getting. It's, it's just a book. It's not going to be a different shape. It can't not fit. It's a book. 
And yet now I've, I've ventured out into to clothing, into shoes, things that you take a risk at because you can't really try them on before you hand over your money. Getting the wrong size is catastrophic. And uh, you, know, you cannot overestimate the danger of when you wear skinny jeans, getting the wrong size of skinny jeans when you're online shopping. Generations are at stake, literally. But buying more online has exposed in me something that I already knew. That when you buy the thing, and then you wait for it with you know, excitement and anticipation, and you get texts from uh, different delivery companies telling you how far it is away, and you check the, and track the, the shipping, and then it finally arrives. And then that, for one sweet moment after you unbox the thing, you have that awesome experience of feeling like right now you have absolutely everything that you need that there is nothing else that you could possibly fill your life with that would improve it. And for that one sweet moment, you've got it all. But then what I've experienced is it's only just a matter of seconds, maybe at a stretch minutes later, when your heart suddenly expands to find more needs. And so, again, you very quickly find the impulse to log back onto Osbargan or go back to visit Amazon to find the next thing that you need. And there are plenty of examples that I could share. You know, I once had a brand new shiny iPhone 4. It was precious to me. I got a protective case for it. Now it is somewhere in my house in one of those technology drawers where all unused old technologies go to die. And we can feel the same about our careers. Everyone with a job is working hard to progress up the ladder of, of influence and responsibility. And so you are networking and you're, you're commenting, hey, really love how your career is shaping up on every LinkedIn comment that you can to get your name out there. But the consistent testimony of everybody who has got to the top is that at the end of their working life, many of the good things that work does provide don't include a life of restful satisfaction. That there is always a hunger for more, always annoying at wanting to have more, to experience more. You might have heard that famous quote from comedian and actor Jim Carrey, who once said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. Author John Stott, in his book, Why I Am a Christian, brings up the writings of a man named Theodore Rozak, who was a writer who wasn't a Christian, and yet he, in his writings, highlighted many of the flaws in our common materialistic worldview. And Rozak wrote that all of us are suffering today from a psychic claustrophobia because of the scientific worldview. That when we just embrace the idea that all that there is is what we can see, what we can touch, what we can observe, we experience claustrophobia, that it is not spacious enough for our human spirit. And so we search for whatever we have in front of us to satisfy and quench our longings, and yet this materialistic worldview isn't spacious enough for us because our hearts were made to find something more, to be fulfilled by something bigger, something lasting. And so here is this rich young man who in the eyes of the world has everything going for him. He literally does have everything that he needs and yet there's still an angst. 
there is still a desire, still a longing to obtain that one last thing, eternal life. And so let's now look at how Jesus responds because he responds in an interesting way. His first question back to the man in verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that can confuse us today that Jesus would take this approach because Jesus, in his response, assumes the perspective of the man. And he says that only God is good, as if to challenge the man, hey, you can only call me good if you're fit and ready to acknowledge that actually I'm God. But the young man doesn't see that yet. And that's the heart of the issue. Perhaps the longings that this man has, the desires that he is asking about, the yearning for eternity, that his whole world is full of money and possessions that perhaps he or someone in his family above him had worked hard for. And so he's assuming that these yearning that he feels can be fulfilled by working for it. And so he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus picks up the first part, Jesus picks up his view of Jesus because his desire for eternal life rests more on his view of Jesus than on a laundry list of accomplishments or his moral life. Here's at the heart of what we can pick up from this, that who you think Jesus is, is eternally more important than what you accomplish, what you achieve or what you accumulate in your life. Who you think Jesus is, is eternally more important than what you achieve in your life, than what you accumulate in your life. And that can be lost in our own day, can't it? That can be lost in our own part of this city, can't it? That can be lost in our own lifestyles built on consumerism and accumulating more or resumes and achieving more. We can lose sight of that very important reality. But Jesus accommodates himself to the man's understanding and he does it again. By continuing, he goes on in verse 20 and 21. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then the man replies, all these I have kept from my youth. And so evidently this man is a bit of a do-gooder. He's a morally upstanding gentleman. He doesn't put a foot wrong. His hair is always done. He is always well-dressed, well-spoken, applying himself in his work and his relationships. He is that annoying person that when you get back to the office soon, is always there before you every single morning. The annoying colleague who always gets the Christmas bonus and is seemingly on pace, tracking faster than everybody else up the org chart. And his approach would make achieving eternal life much simpler, wouldn't it? That if it were just a recipe, if it were just about a, a dash of, of charity here, a couple of decades of faithfulness in marriage, a, a life of keeping yourself from anyone who was unclean or uh, letting others kind of go about their business on their own. You know, I grew up thinking that this was the idea of Christianity, that I just had to be, be a good boy. And that whatever circles I was running in, as long as I was a, bit, a little bit more morally upstanding than the circles I was in, that people who knew that I existed were kind of liked me and that I was likable. If I could be that kind of person, then, then surely God must himself like me as well. And so I put energy into being perhaps like this young man, 
someone who out outwardly looked like they had it all together. And so I still kind of wanted to be likable. So, so I'd go to, to parties with my mates, uh, but I'd just make sure that I was a little bit more self-aware about what I was ingesting and, and, and keeping my wits about me. So I could say that I was still doing the right thing. I still wanted to kind of express my outrage at things, but instead of swearing, I'd say shivers. And so I sought to be this kind of young man, that I might be able to get to the end of my life and say, Jesus, I've done it. Hand me, please, my well-earned eternal life. But Jesus isn't finished here in his answer and his conversation with the young man because Jesus doesn't mention all the commandments to him. It's not as if Jesus is kind of listing them all, tick, 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 tick. He's actually trying to make an argument. He's trying to make a point here because he skipped over the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus has kept that close to his chest because he's wanted to, to start the conversation and down the lines that, that the man framed it as, as, as what must I do? And yet Jesus has kept back this first commandment as his trump card so that he might be laser focused in his application to this particular rich young man. And so after the man has responded in the positive, Jesus leans in and says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we see again the response of the man. When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And so to be clear, Jesus isn't saying here that to own possessions is a bad thing. No, there are many examples in the Bible where, where Jesus blesses people with possessions or money or, or riches. To saying here, Jesus isn't, isn't saying that uh, to follow him, you need to be a, a minimalist. We could go elsewhere to prove that that's not the case. But Jesus is going after this man's heart and exposing that for him, money, possessions, treasure is the one thing that's keeping him back from eternal life, a satisfying life, true happiness in Christ, in God. Because he sees those things as more valuable than Jesus. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is going after his God. And so Jesus, in his approach here, is, is channeling Tyler Durden, the character from Fire Club, who says, the things you own end up owning you. The things you're chasing end up chasing you. The things that you put the most weight upon end up weighing down on you. And this is particularly true for money and possessions. So they have a particularly strong gravitational pull for every human heart. They shape us and they change us in profound, often subtle, but powerful ways. Jesus is saying that if this man and if you and me are going to inherit eternal life and step into the life for which we have been made, the life that our soul is yearning for, is longing for, then we need to see that Jesus is even better than money, than possessions. Jesus is even better than anything else this life might give us. But this rich young man is, is like a little kid who, when offered a rich 
fat, juicy steak. Medium rare, garlic butter. He runs away from it and instead picks up a gluten-free rice cracker. This man does not have the taste buds for what really matters. This man is asleep to what really matters in life. And so he tragically walks away. It is as if he is sleepwalking away from the glistening glory of the man whom he's speaking to, Jesus himself, and back to the safety of the life that he's bought for himself, the life that he knows, full of his possessions that are going to be destroyed by tiny little moths and microscopic particles known as rust. And so if Jesus was to love us, if we were to have this conversation with Jesus, you and me, those who uh, occupy the east and the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, the most livable part of what once was the world's most livable city, but yet what remains true, the richest part of the, the richest society at the richest time that the world has ever seen. If Jesus wanted to home in on our hearts, and I'm convinced that he, he does today, he wants to home in on your heart this morning, what's Jesus going to call you to stop following? What God is Jesus going to seek to dethrone from your heart that your heart might truly experience what it really longs for? How are we going to wake up to experience the life that we're really wanting? And so what is at the center of your life's attention? Ask yourself, is there anything that that I would be most nervous about giving up? That it might be the very thing that Jesus is poking in on. This is a wake-up call for us today. Jesus is telling us today that unless he is at the center of your life, unless you see Jesus as better than anything and everything else, then you will be tragically distracted, you will be continually dissatisfied, and you will be ultimately, eternally cut off from him. Unless Jesus is at the center of your life, then really, you're like me, you're you're asleep to what is really going on. And so this is the central teaching of Jesus. This is the central conviction of our church that having Jesus is better than having treasure. Having Jesus is better than an incredible professional reputation. Having Jesus is better than financial security. Having Jesus is better than having a life that ticks all the moral boxes and and projects an, an outwardly moral life. And yet in the text, it's, it's not, we're not there yet, are we? It's, it's not yet obvious to us why that might be. And even the disciples who are kind of crowding around Jesus, listening to his interaction with this rich young ruler, you know, initially at the beginning of the conversation, they would have been like, yeah, come on, you tell him, Jesus. But as Jesus has continued to dial in on this man's heart, he's also been dialing in on theirs. And so they start, they start to get a little bit, little bit nervous. And so they start to ask questions about Jesus' claim here. And Jesus has to acknowledge how difficult it is, particularly for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. In other words, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to put Jesus first in your life, above money, above riches, above possessions. 
And so Peter asks, Jesus, then, then who can be saved? And Jesus says to him in verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And doesn't that just sum up the Christian faith for us? What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, the common misconception that's rife in our culture is that the Christian life, and even you know, we wander into this thinking as Christians, is that the Christian life is all about being a certain type of person, putting on a certain type of front, holding to certain political convictions, celebrating certain religious dates on the calendar. And if you think that, you'll probably end up asking like this man, what must I do? But the message of Jesus and the witness of the Bible is that none of us can do our lives always with the right heart. What must I do is the wrong question because none of us can ever do right. Rather, the question is, what has God done? And so the man hadn't seen it yet and the disciples didn't understand it yet. But when we know that God, what God has done in Jesus, we see why Jesus is better than money and comfort and security and peace and influence and better than everything and anything. Because this young man hearing of the cost of all he'd have to reprioritize and give up if he is to truly follow Jesus and obtain that eternal life that only Jesus offers, he thought it wasn't worth it. So he walked away. But Luke in the book, as we've detailed all these encounters He's telling us that Jesus is also walking somewhere. Jesus is also on a journey. Jesus is also walking, but he's walking the opposite way to this young man. Because Jesus was walking to Jerusalem, where he would face an unjust death at the hands of religious leaders. Jesus had weighed it up as well. He'd weighed up the full cost of what it would take to put God's will above his own. It would cost him his life. And so Jesus, because of his love for this man who was walking the other way, because of his love for you, his love for me, his love for us, Jesus was determined to give himself up, to lay his life down in the place of all of those who acknowledge that they cannot inherit life, eternal life on their own. They can't make life work on their own. They can't put their priorities and their purposes of God in their heart into a God-centered direction that all of us by nature and choice run the opposite way and after other things. Knowing all that, Jesus still willingly died in the greatest act of love, giving up all that he had so that we might obtain all that he has won for us, that we might be invited to join his family, to have all he has and to have eternal life and to be reconciled with God, our creator the one who made and shaped and fashioned our hearts to experience the desires, to experience the hungers and the thirsts and the longings that all of us experience. And so this is why our hearts gnaw at us when we don't have that. This is why nothing else can satisfy us. This is why we can't obtain eternal life on our own because we were made to know God. And the good news of Jesus is you can 
that by trusting in Jesus, by putting your faith in Jesus, not asking what must I do, but looking to him, to what he has done in dying in your place and in rising again. You can have it. Suddenly your heart can receive what it longs for. C.S. Lewis has famously said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. You were made for an eternal, permanent, lasting world. A world with God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Look to what Jesus has done for you. See him there on the cross, paying your debt so that you might have his life and see it worth more than everything else. Jesus finishes this thought that's led by the disciples now and offers us this profound picture of the communal Christian life together. And it's important for us who call ourselves Christians to, to think about how this plays out in our own life as well. Because Peter tells Jesus of, of what he has given up. Peter says to Jesus in verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And so he's contrasting himself with this young man. This young man didn't want to give anything up. He, he actually walked back to his home. that he might put his feet up and delight in all that he has. And yet Peter is saying, hey, we're not like that guy. We have given up everything to follow you. What, what's, what's coming for us, Jesus? Jesus says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so for sure, this passage has pointed us to the great cost that Jesus himself and only Jesus himself has paid to secure our eternal life. He died in our place and he rose again that we might be reconciled with God. But here he hints at a cost for us as well. Whatever Jesus homes in on for us, we will have to forsake. It is hard to step off the treadmill of career progression or pursuing uh, status or influence or fame or fortune and instead give your life to Jesus. And the Bible's realistic about that being hard. The Bible's realistic about that being a challenge. It's not going to be a walk in the park. And there's going to be some of us who are tuning in right now and we're going to have to change our life plans because of Jesus, because we see him better than our life plans. Some of us are going to have to stop pursuing riches and instead become rich in generosity and in giving. Some of us are going to have to stop idolizing comfort and instead become uncomfortable, put ourselves out there in discomfort that we might serve people that we wouldn't otherwise interact with, that we might give things up that we would otherwise want to keep to ourselves, that we might put ourselves in uncomfortable situations for the sake of gospel progress. Some of us are going to have to give up our, our vision of, of what our romantic life might have looked like. Some of us might have to give up our vision of what our household and, and family life would look like so that we might use our time and our energy laying our lives down in ways that we couldn't otherwise if we were more attached. But Jesus makes a promise that what we gain with him will be at least a hundred times better than anything 
that we have to give up, both in this life and the next for all eternity. A life that puts Jesus first will be a life that lacks nothing that contributes to your satisfaction, to your eternal life. And so it is all gain. Any sacrifice today is made up for even all the more, multiple times more, both in the next life, but even still in the life here and now. Because if you step out of the priorities of your family, for example, for the sake of following Jesus, you enter a new family, the family of God, where you'll be loved and supported and encouraged and empowered. If you step off the treadmill of pursuing prosperity and financial security for the sake of Jesus, you actually step into a people who look out for each other, who share their goods with one another, who provide for one another, who sacrificially give to each other. This is who we're called to be as a church. This is what we're called to embody as Jesus' body on earth. We are called to share every burden together that we might help each other sacrifice now so that we could keep our eyes on Jesus, so that we could keep our hearts seeing Jesus as better than anything else, to protect each other from the gravitational pull of this world, to be God's family for one another. And so let us wake up. One's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Life does not consist in the success of any human endeavor. Life exists, consists, will persist for all eternity, only in Jesus. And so let's keep our eyes on him. Let's keep trusting Jesus, church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this encounter in Luke 18. May it be an encounter not just for this rich young ruler, but an encounter for us. An encounter with Jesus that shakes us, that destabilizes us, that convicts us. And yet we know in Jesus, every one of those encounters is met with his embrace, his taking our burden, his sharing his yoke. And so help us see Jesus as better than anything else. And if that requires sacrifice right now, and indeed it will, we pray, Lord, that you would be Lord and King who provides for us in such a way that any sacrifice won't feel like it. Lord, help us to know your great love for us in how you have given up everything, your own life, Father, your Son, to live our life but yet die our death. We thank you that Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has defeated the things that that we seek security from. And so help us trust in him. Help us put our hope in him. Help us rest our life upon him. And so wherever we're at right now, however we're tuning in, Holy Spirit, would you hone in now on our hearts? Would you speak to us? And would you reveal and, and show us Jesus might home in on if this was us in this passage, because it is. And so come and reshape and change our lives around Jesus, that we might live for you. Lord, we need your help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, 
please visit cityonahill.com.au.